1: Thank you all for joining us for Political Rewind as we start a brand new week here at GPB Radio. It's December 13th, uh, Christmas, just about uh, 12, 10 days away, uh, 12 days away. And uh, for all of you who've been out there shopping, uh, take a break this morning, sit back, have a cup of coffee, listen to Political Rewind. I was telling the panel uh, I was talking to them before we went on the air. I said, you know, Hanukkah came especially early, the earliest I can ever recall. It started at the end of, the, of November. So, uh, you know, for the Jewish community, we're done. We're sitting back and enjoying watching everybody else <laughs> rush around trying to buy Christmas presents. And I do wish you well uh, with that. Lots to talk about on the show today. So let's get right to the panel. It's Monday, which means Jim Galloway, former Political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution joins us. Jim, how are you today?
2: Uh, I'm, oh, I'm doing great. It's, it's, it's a, a wonderful morning out here in, in Cobb County. Uh, blue skies, a little frost on the, on the ground. We're, we're doing fine.
1: Uh, Jim, before we—we're uh, not going to have a lot to say about this, but uh, as long as I'm talking to you first, um, there's an interesting move now underway. Senator Raphael Warnock, and I think John Ossoff also signing on to this, want to rename the uh v a hospital uh in uh Atlanta after your close friend uh Max Cleland, who of course w- was once the head of veterans administration um it's going to be interesting to see if that uh, gets the support that Asaf and Warnock i hope it does
2: and I, and I think it will i you've already got uh, uh several Georgia Republicans uh, mm-hmm. indicating that they're going to sign on to the effort i don't I don't think that uh uh it, it uh uh, Max was not a was not a part. Uh, uh, other than that, two thousand two defeat. He, he was really not a part of the, the 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 great polarization of American politics. So I think I think he'll he will he'll he'll be a chance for people to kind of re, uh, offer a thought about how we used to be. Yeah, we'll watch that uh, very closely. And oh, and, if I if uh, I could I, if if I could sure. Uh, 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 Max died last last month. There was only a private service. Uh, a a, a uh, public service has now been scheduled for January 14th uh, at, uh, at, the, uh, at at the at a. Uh, a United Methodist Church in, in in Midtown, I think, in, in, in Buckhead. All
1: right, good. We'll keep, yeah, we'll keep on top of that and uh, let our listeners know about it as we get closer. Thanks for sharing that. Um, we're also joined today by uh, Andre Gillespie, Professor of Political Science and Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Andre, is the semester over, papers graded, uh, you know, everything done and you're now set for the holiday?
0: Not quite. Oh, is the story of my, the end of my semester. So I'm not quite done yet, but I should be done a week
1: from now for sure. Okay. Well, we wish you well with that. Margaret Coker is here. She's the editor in chief of The Current, the uh, nonprofit digital uh, newspaper, which uh, she publishes down on the coast in Savannah. Um, Margaret, uh, I always want to tell people that they can read. Uh, The Current at uh, thecurrentga.org, and they really should because you really do keep track of what's happening along the Georgia coast as well as the rest of the state, Margaret.
3: Yep, we are reviving public service journalism in in our corner of our beloved state from St. Mary's, Brunswick, all the way up to Savannah. And we have some good news. Um, Last week, we were named um, a a finalist or uh, an awardee. There's an organization called Report for America who is helping subsidize the cost of local journalists coming to work in local newsrooms. And The Current has been named one of the newest newsrooms. So um, early next year, we will be expanding our staff and hiring another full-time reporter to cover public safety and criminal justice issues to keep um, to keep up accountability stories uh, among police departments and the courts in coastal Georgia.
1: Well, congratulations, uh, Margaret. That's wonderful to hear. Um, All right. Let's start. You know, uh, Jim, it's been a week now since David Perdue uh, announced that he was going to run against Brian Kemp for the Republican nomination for uh, governor. And, and the week has been marked, I think it's safe to say, by Purdue, who has said he wants to run a campaign based on the future and his ideas for where Georgia should go, has in fact devoted at least the entire first week of his campaign to uh, uh, relitigating the 2020 election and uh, furthering Donald Trump's claims about fraud in the Georgia election, a fraud that gave Joe Biden a victory here. And uh, to underline that, on Friday, he filed a lawsuit uh, asking the courts to allow him access to Fulton County absentee ballots to study them uh, for signs of the fraud that he claims uh, was uh, committed. Jim, that's that's been litigated at least several times already.
2: Right. And we've had the audits. We've had the recounts. uh, Perdue is alleging some, uh, and I use a uh, heavy use of air quotes here, obviously counterfeited, uh, uh, ballots, absentee ballots, but really there's the only, th- the, the, the key difference in the, in, in this lawsuit, uh, uh, vis-a-vis the other ones that judges have all thrown out is the fact that David Purdue is the, 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 is, is the litigant there and he's, I think they're hoping that he, he will have standing, uh, uh, uh that's one reason that the judges threw out the other cases uh because they could the 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 people filing the suits couldn't show uh obvious and immediate harm you know it, it's it, this is it's 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 a it's a very curious tactic because obviously he's he's you know by the time this election uh comes around uh, you know, Trump's defeat will be 2 years old so you have to wonder what what Purdue is 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 thinking here, and you know, long term, Bill, it's it's it occurs to me that okay, I, I still think a, a, a running against a, an incumbent in your own party is 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 not a, a it's 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 not a surefire tactic here. Uh, I know the polling shows them neck and neck, but but still, you have the the incumbency is, is 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 an important thing in Georgia, and I and I have to wonder whether David Perdue might be thinking about twenty twenty four. About whether whether in what way, in in uh, if Trump Donald Trump runs again, he's going to need a running mate. And there are all sorts of ways to prove yourself to Donald Trump, but I don't think there's anything like. Uh, taking up taking up his his cause of a of a a so-called uh, 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 corrupt election. Uh, well, there's an interesting
1: scenario. Unfortunately, for the time being, Brian Kemp has to take him very seriously in 2022. But it's interesting uh, that you think there's might be some uh, 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 point that uh, uh, Purdue is trying to make with Trump that he would be a good running mate in a, another uh, two years after next year's election. But, Andra, I want to – and please correct me if I'm wrong. It strikes me that typically um, we expect a candidate wow. for office to have a message, to be running on a, on, on a set of ideas about how she or he wants to see uh, the, the state, the county, the congressional district – uh, uh, unfold in, in during that person's term tenure in office. On, on Friday, I played the famous clip of Edward Kennedy being asked why he wanted to run for president and he couldn't answer the question. And, and in fact, there are many people who think that was the death of his campaign right there. He didn't have a rationale for why he should be president. And so I ask you that in this context today, if David Perdue keeps relitigating 2020, is that going to be a message that can move him forward in this race?
0: Well, okay, so in the primary, his raison d'etre is that Donald Trump likes him and doesn't like the other guy. Um, and I think what he is banking on, especially with this right word run, and I just find it very ironic because in 2014 when he was running for the Senate, he wasn't the right word candidate. Um, you know, I would argue that Jack Kingston was the more conservative leaning candidate in 2014 when we get to the Senate runoff there. But he's moved to his right because that is where the base of the party has gone. And what he is hoping is that by challenging Kemp on the right flank, knowing that Kemp is despised by the pure Trumpers within the party, that that's going to be enough to put together a majority coalition of uh, of voters to help him win the primary. I think the big challenge is is that in a general election, this race is ultimately going to come down to turnout. Are Republicans or Democrats going to be the ones to get, to get the most people to turn out to vote? But in particular, is he going to have to go so right that it doesn't look credible? Now, he's been a loyal kind of Trump soldier the whole time. but. David Perdue doesn't quite sort of have sort of like the raw meat Republican kind of thing of of, of some other uh, figures in the state, and so it's just a question of how credible that would be and whether or not that could potentially turn off the very small sliver of persuadable voters that could be the difference between winning and losing a general election
1: here. Margaret,
3: yeah, I'm. Um... Here in coastal Georgia, of course, um, while he was Senator, David Perdue um, had his home address here in Sea Island, right? Home of Georgia's billionaires and mega millionaires. And throughout um, the last campaign in uh, last year in 2020, a lot of people who were his neighbors, legitimately his neighbors and people who live in coastal Georgia were scratching their heads about the way that he was running that campaign. Um, David Perdue, for whatever his voting record, was not very well known for having um, a strong retail political gene um, in his body. He didn't seem to have a strong constituency network in our part of the state, if if anywhere else in the state. He seemed to be more comfortable um, here also in coastal Georgia. Of course, we're home of Gulfstream, so corporate jet owners might see him in the VIP terminals, and you might see him at at, uh, golf courses or at corporate functions. But to really get the Republican base energized, he's going to have to do more than put on a jean jacket. He's really going to have to figure out how to talk to those people. And maybe the power of Newsmax and Fox News behind him will help him overcome those sort of personality deficiencies in retail politics. But I'm not sure. There's a lot of people scratching their heads here about what he's up to and whether he'll be successful.
1: Um, you know, Jim, we could have said this uh, back while uh, he was still a U.S. senator and David Perdue became one of Trump's uh, most uh, uh, loyal supporters. But it's it's an odd fit when you think about David Perdue's history. Here's a guy who was a CEO of Fortune 500 companies. He styled himself. As an outstanding business executive, and it's one of the things that he ran on when he ran his first race for the u.s Senate um, so if, if there's something sort of incongruous about this side of David Perdue, given the way he's described himself in the past
2: well, there always has been and, and, and I mean look he's, he was he was a CEO of, of, of several uh, fairly fairly large companies uh, his his chief uh, area of specialty was outsourcing, uh, was finding finding uh, factories in, in foreign countries, including China, that could manufacture uh, 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 shoes, clothes, all sorts of things, uh, and 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 he was and and he is now in a in a party that is that has has identified uh, white working class voters as its base. And so that's so that's that, that's that's going to continue to be a problem for him. I mean, I think uh, in the, in that sense, I think uh, uh, Governor Kemp has a better, uh, as a as a as a kind of a building building contractor, has his own has is is a better touchstone for 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 working class voters. But of course, Donald Trump changes that. Uh, and I think, and I, and I I'm not sure whether you're ready to get to this topic, but. This this is very this is very much like the the Doug Collins Kelly Leffler Senate race of of last year, the difference is uh, Brian uh, Brian Kemp is an incumbent governor, and it's going to have this terrific impact on what comes out of the legislature uh, starting the first Monday in January.
1: Yeah, I, I do want to talk about that in a second. But before we even get there, uh, Andra, I do think it's interesting to think about the Kemp-Purdue battle <clears throat> in the context of the, <clears throat> excuse me, Doug Collins-Kelly Cal- Loeffler battle as they each raced as far to the right as they could get uh, to, uh, uh, to, to win the nomination. And we know that in the long run, that weakened uh, the eventual nominee, Kelly Loeffler, as she tried to win uh, uh, a runoff election uh, against uh, Raphael Warnock?
0: Well, okay, so uh, bloody primaries are a double-edged sword. So on the one mm. hand, they can um, help to prepare a candidate for what's coming in the general election. Um, if you have you know, been able to survive a tough primary, you, you've worked some muscles that somebody who coasted through and didn't have to exercise. Um, On the other hand, it depletes resources, and it helps to create a narrative that might be hard to overcome in the general election. And so that's always the fear and and, and the problem going into this. Um, You know, I think added to this one is the wild card that if Brian Kemp wins, there may be a chance that Donald Trump, in a purely unstrategic, undisciplined move, says something insane and tells Republicans to not vote in an election out of spite. For people, So I think that all of those factors are at play there. I think, in general, for the types of regular voters who were voting before Donald Trump became a political actor, if you're a Republican, you're probably going to vote for either David Perdue or Brian Kemp, right? Because your, your partisanship is, is, is hardened at this point, and you're probably not going to consider Stacey Abrams. And you may want to consider the bigger picture, but I think the issue is, is that this is going to be a close election, and so the idea that a Republican candidate could afford to like lose votes that he should get um, is something that can't be chance, um at, at at this particular point. I think if we look at the um, go back to last year and we look at Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler, I think you know they were partially hampered by low turnout and not being able to get a handle on the GOTV. And then I also think that we have to consider. And, and Purdue needs to consider this as well. Kelly Leffler, in particular, was a terrible candidate um, who was um, inexperienced. Um, and you know when it came time to come to the runoff part of the election, had one message that didn't go over well. And Raphael Warnock was actually incredibly effective at being able to counter it, though he too was a novice candidate. Um, we'll have to wait to see whether or not David Purdue can actually kind of pull out some of the experience that he's had running for statewide office to do something different, even though he was making some of the same missteps this time last year that Leffler was as well.
1: So, uh, Margaret, uh, uh, Andra said, who knows what Trump could do if uh, David Perdue loses the GOP nomination, but it's not fantasy she's talking about. He Donald Trump has already at a rally uh, told Republican voters that maybe it'd be, they'd be better off with Stacey Abrams as governor uh, than Brian Kemp. So uh, there's no question that he has it within him to undermine Kemp's candidacy uh, in a general election and perhaps keep Republicans from turning out to the polls the way that people didn't turn out to vote for the Republican Senate candidates.
3: Yeah, this is it is it is the most crazy, wacky situation in Georgia right now where the former president has uh, our state as a mosquito bite that just won't go away. He keeps scratching at it and scratching at it. And hopefully it's not going to be the good citizens of Georgia that end up bloody because of it. You know, it's not um, national, national media. We're making a big deal about the Georgia governor's race last month and uh, and trying to make comparisons about what Georgia's governor's race will be like as well. Trump is here. Trump is going to be here. Trump is going to insert his, um, his, his, uh, his penchant for, for putting his foot in his mouth over and over again during this campaign season um, for the next year. And I, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that is going to be good or not good. But we're not going to be able to dismiss him and ignore him um, until next November.
1: Jim, before we get off this uh, subject completely and do turn to what you had suggested, what, what does this mean for the legislative session and what kind of issues may be coming forward? And we'll, we'll do that in a couple minutes. But what does this battle mean for other races on uh, the Republican uh, ticket, in, on the Republican side of the ballot? For the primary, so by that I mean, um, right now, Herschel Walker has gotten almost no attention because it's all focused on David Perdue and uh, Brian Kemp. And so the reporters who might otherwise be spending a lot of time trying to pin Walker down, what does he stand for, uh, and that sort of thing, uh, instead, the focus has mostly been on Kemp and Perdue. Now that'll change when when a general election comes along, but it certainly strikes me it hurts. The uh, Republicans who are running against Hershel Walker and trying to get some oxygen in the middle of this Kemp-Perdue fight—it
2: hurts them. It hurts uh, uh, people like uh, Gary Black, who's running for uh, uh, egg, egg commissioner. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, not, not egg for the for the Senate. <laughs> uh, it, it hurts uh, uh, Brad Raffensperger. I think what you're going to see is. Is the creation? I'm sure Trump or Trump and Purdue want to see kind of a Trump-Purdue ticket form in Georgia, and of course you do have. I know Herschel Walker has has tried not to not to uh, uh, not to choose a side. Uh, I'm, uh, I think Chris Carr has endorsed Kemp, uh, but. I don't think th- – there, uh, there's no – there's, there's not going to be any room for neutrality in, in a GOP primary come April, I think, come April and May. I think there, these candidates are going to be forced to back either either Brian Kemp or David Perdue. And that's, that's going to give a kind of a singular dynamic, I think, to the contest.
1: Well, I want to, before we have to get to a break, Margaret, I'm thinking about uh, your part of the state down there. Buddy Carter, who's also been a, an adamant Trump uh, supporter, is one of those people who has, to the best of my knowledge, has not weighed in on, on supporting either Kemp or Purdue. But at a certain point, is he going to have to say something?
3: Yeah, I think he'll wait till the very last minute to say something because Buddy Carter is never the man who runs into um, the house burning down first. But, you know, to, um, to add on to Jim's point, you know, if, if we are turning out um, by, by the summer and next fall, we have a de facto Trump ticket um, for the state of Georgia, I think we're all going to have to look at um, what happened in 2020 in terms of another demographic, and that would be Republican women. There were women all over the state of Georgia who are very proud Republicans who decided they just couldn't vote Trump anymore, and the reasons were multitude and various. But that's not a surefire way also to get, to get a ticket elected right now. Um, women in Georgia um, don't necessarily follow party line. And women in Georgia have, have um, some real real deep, um, well-exercised critical thinking skills. So uh, I don't see a clear path forward with the Trump ticket here next fall.
1: Uh, Andra, so finally, uh, g- give us your thoughts on this notion that the Trump-Kemp campaign- race uh, sort of blots out the sun for many other candidates on the ballot coming up?
0: Um, you know, it certainly takes opportunities for earned media away. But then again, um, some of those mm. candidates were going to have uh, a lot of headwinds in coming at them in terms of this. So I think it was already difficult once Herschel Walker got into the race for the other candidates mm. to get a lot of airtime. So, yeah, this doesn't help that situation, but I don't necessarily think that if it turns out that Walker wins, that we're going to point to David Perdue as being the death knell of, you know, Gary Black's campaign or Kelvin King's campaign. Their, their campaigns were challenged from the start. Um, you know, I think that that Senate race is going to be, you know, it, it's in part driven by celebrity, which is why Walker has the ability to kind of stay neutral and will probably stay neutral the longest. Um, you know, in terms of this race, and I think the big question that we're going to see is sort of what's the correlation of votes between Purdue and Kemp versus Walker and other types of things. And so I could see a lot of people mm. voting for Herschel Walker and him perhaps being the highest vote getter in that Republican primary. And you're going to see sort of more heterogeneity in terms of what the gubernatorial choice um, will be.
1: Oh, yeah, I thank you for that observation. All right, got to get to the first break of the show. When we come back, I do want to turn to uh, how this contest may reverberate in the legislative session, which starts now in just a few weeks. You're listening to Political Rewind. <laughs> The Currents, Margaret Coker, Emory University's Dr. Andra Gillespie, and Jim Galloway, former AJC political columnist, uh, join us uh, today. Uh, Jim, uh, uh, your former colleague Greg Bluestein filed a piece late last week saying that we may see culture wars uh, uh, triggered in the legislature because of the Kemp-Purdue battle, and here's what he wrote in the lead. Facing stiff Republican opposition to re-election, Governor Brian Kemp is likely to lead Georgia legislators deeper into divisive cultural clashes over guns, race, and gender during the upcoming legislative session. The first-term governor has already endorsed efforts to restrict so-called obscene materials from public schools, block the teaching of critical race theory, but there are questions remaining, and this is no longer Bluestein about whether or not we're now going to see a proposal that's never gotten very far that would let gun owners conceal and carry handguns without a permit. So let's talk about what we might expect uh, uh, coming up when the session begins.
2: Well, I think the the big one is going to be uh, um, uh, the, the, the city of Buckhead and the annexation. Um Hey, uh, Bill, if if I could, I'm, I'm having yeah. some audio problem. If you okay. could just k- kind of shift to somebody else for the moment.
1: We'll do that. We'll see if we can. I, thanks for telling us. We'll we'll correct the issue as quickly as we can. Um, Andra, what, what do you make of the, these issues? Another issue that's on the table is going to be, you know, further restrictions for transgender students, uh, student athletes in school. I mean— Are you anticipating a sharp turn to the right in the legislative agenda?
0: Well, I mean, I think to put this into context with our last segment, um, there's going to be pressure on Governor Kemp to support and to push through legislation that's going to help shore up his right flank. And so I think that that's kind of the concern that was undergirding sort of, you know, the, the, the article. And I think some of the speculation that's going on there about what Kemp might actually be willing to support. Now that he's got a right word challenge, Kemp is going to go to the right. He did this actually, you know, in 2018. Um, like, I don't think we would have had anything about putting, uh, you know, undocumented fo- uh, undocumented folks in his truck if Michael Williams hadn't been there with the deportation bus. So mm. um, this is, is the same closed? thing. and so. Uh, and so Kemp is going to have to demonstrate his bona fides by supporting some types of legislation that show him as a man of action and show him as actually being really responsive to the needs of uh, and, and to the concerns of Republican voters
3: in the state. Margaret? Yeah. So there's going to be symbolic legislation passed for sure that that is um, is all about a short-term primary win. And not so good for long term or even medium term, you know, welfare and improvement of life for Georgians. Um, public safety, um, crime. These are going to be hot button tickets. Like, issues. Excuse me. They're already hot button issues, and that is, of course, the thing that is fueling this um, the the Buckhead um, incorporation uh, um, campaign. But underlying all of this, of course, is is the reality that we all face around the state, which is we. We, crime, violent crime is rising. Um, there is great studies that show why violent crime rises when you have a, a plethora of guns on the street and a plethora of guns available um, for purchase without background checks. When you have uh, families who are struggling to make ends meet and crime becomes one and only option for, for young men or young women to, um, to take advantage of when they don't see any other hope for their future. You know we need we need a way to solve these problems holistically and i'm not sure that the legislature is going to take up anything that is deep and meaningful in that sector um this term
1: you know jim i understand your your the problem has been corrected and that you're back with us thank goodness so well let me put this in a different context um there will be efforts to move uh, measures that are, are farther to the right than may otherwise have happened were it not for this battle, although there will always be attempts by some lawmakers to uh, move the agenda to the right. But, but you've got two leaders who may uh, temper things in both the House and the Senate. David Ralston has always uh, uh, tried to, uh, and not always successfully, He's always uh, tried to have a somewhat moderating force on the most conservative uh, bills that come forward. And and over on the Senate side, uh, the lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, who does not necessarily control the chamber the way the speaker does, but David Ralston, I mean, but Jeff Duncan is clearly uh, uh, supportive of Brian Kemp. And is part of that GOP 2.0 movement, which uh, repudiates what uh, Trump stands for in terms of fraud in the election, so there are influences that could uh, have a big impact on the legislation that comes forward.
2: Right. Yeah. You, you do have you you do have David Ralston, uh as it's kind of the 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 more temperate uh, leader in in the House. Uh, Duncan is in a, is in a, a, a far different position. Uh, not only does, does the president of the Senate, the lieutenant governor serves as president of the Senate, uh, he's not quite as powerful, not nearly as powerful as, as the speaker, but he's also got to deal with the, the contest to replace him between uh, Republicans Butch Miller and Burt Jones, which is going to create its own dynamic within the caucus, if, if you know uh one thing if if I could get back to the city of Buckhead uh because I sure. think I think that's I, I I think that that is going to be a defining issue and it's a, an alluring issue because the object would be to put that issue on the ballot in November which would drive Republican votes uh, in, in in that particular area, which would be awfully tempting here uh for 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 Republicans but you're talking about, destruction of one of the, the the of 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 Georgia's kind of best known brand name here Atlanta the city of Atlanta and you've got a huge community uh, business uh uh movement rising up in opposition to 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 to, the, to this idea here and so not mm-hmm. only could you have you, you you've you've got a, a, a the the Purdue Kemp split to worry about but Republicans also have to worry about uh, uh, business drifting away from their party. Uh, as a, I mean, we've already we've al- already seen the fights between Delta and Coke over, over over some social issues. This would be a this would be a, just a this is this is foundational. The city of Atlanta is a foundational issue, I think, for for, for businesses in the area.
1: Yeah. And Margaret, what's what's odd about the whole Buckhead City movement, it is being led by an outsider, um, Bill White, who came here from New York a few years ago and took the reins of this cityhood uh, movement and has been very outspoken. And, and frankly, you know, he's done a pretty good job of messaging, whether you like what he's talking about or not. He's been an aggressive uh, proponent of the, the city of Buckhead. And then you've got uh, a, a measure that is being supported by only Republicans who are, not, who are outside of, uh, of Buckhead. Uh, so it's an odd movement. You don't have, at least in the public official side, any people from Buckhead involved in this and the leader of the movement, a relative newcomer to the area.
3: Yes, it it it's, it's, um, it makes your head spin, right? Because uh, for so many issues, the Republican Party of Georgia cites home rule and the 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 absolute uh, uh, um, um uh, symbolism of home rule. And so this is this is an outsider carpetbagger um, who is trying to make um, a lot of political mileage. There might, there are obviously underlying issues that that speak to people's hearts and minds because. It is, it's a movement that's gaining traction. But at the end of the day, it, it is, there's something bigger going on here. And um, again, it's, it's pretty extraordinary that in my lifetime, we've seen, um, we've seen the rise of, of large Fortune 500 businesses come into politics on such deep and meaningful levels when it comes to social issues. And the City of Buckhead movement is, is larger than a social issue, larger than one issue, and probably larger than one political campaign And it'll be really interesting to see the role that that Atlanta businesses do play in either stopping this in its tracks or at least slowing it down and trying to bring some pragmatism back into um, back into meaningful debate that will have consequences for years to come, as Jim was saying.
1: Andra?
0: Um, You know, I can't say that we're surprised by sort of the Buckhead, you know, proposed session. Um, you know, I get that sort of the outsiders kind of coming in. People have talked about sort of outsiders in other contexts, not necessarily as part of the county, um, as part of the county delegation, but whether or not you'd have to go to somebody who might be sort of in another district. If, and please, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong about that. I mean, I think the thing that's probably most notable about this one is, you know, Bill Wyatt ties to trump and the fact that he's a in atlanta a recent atlanta transplant um and so the idea that somebody could be in town for a couple of years and then completely you know up in the politics um in a city that he may not understand all that well yet i think is the thing that's notable but perhaps he wouldn't be doing that if we hadn't seen all of these cityhood initiatives happen you know in you know in metro atlanta in the last 15 years and so you know it's riding a a, a momentum Um, That's been going on for a long period of time. Um, And so in that respect, I don't think that we should be uh, surprised by it. I also don't think that we shouldn't be surprised that, you know, she's also riding sort of the waves of, of, of language that has racial subtext to it in order to be able to kind of push this idea and to be able to get some traction among people.
1: All right. um, Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way uh, a little bit early because there are a couple issues I really want to take up when we uh, come back, um, including what I find to be a very peculiar uh, discussion going on in Smyrna right now about whether to preserve a restaurant that back uh, up until the mid-90s was a tribute essentially to the antebellum South and the slave culture of uh, the South uh, before the Civil War and moving forward. We'll do all that and more when we come back. The Wall Street Journal published an interesting story this morning that I passed on to our panelists a little earlier this morning uh, that, that certainly is pertinent to the state of Georgia. Um, And and the headline of the story was new political maps will kill swing districts from coast to coast. Here's uh, the start of the piece. More races for the U.S. House next year will start with one party holding a significant advantage because the process of redrawing congressional district lines is whittling down the number of politically competitive seats. More than half of the states have finished the process, according to the Journal article, and their analysis of those states shows that there are only 12 politically competitive districts of all of those uh, 22 states. The number of districts with strong Republican tilts has grown to 77, up from 64, while districts considered safe for Democrats have grown from 59 to 61. So, Andre Gillespie, you're a data person and and i, I but the, really one of the reasons this is fascinating to me is what it does is it 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 will extend the entrenchment of members of congress to in in their own political spheres they can continue to support only their most partisan the most partisan issues because they'll appeal to their voters right well i
0: mean this is allowed. The Supreme Court has chimed in on this. They are not going to do anything to try to change partisan gerrymandering. And so as long as we let the fox into the hen house, we should expect that these kinds of things are going to happen. The only thing that is going to change this is some political will. Um, You know, nonpartisan redistricting was a part of the For the People Act that is solved in the Senate. And so as long as legislators, Um, stand in the way and obstruct common sense, nonpartisan redistricting, this is likely going to happen. And so we're going to have calcified districts that will only likely change because of uh, demographic changes that force uh, districts to have to be redrawn in ways that may or may not help certain parties, just given the sort of sheer number of Republicans or Democrats who happen to be congregated in a particular area. But even then, I think we also have to acknowledge the limits of partisan districting. Like we've seen those uh, processes be, um, you know, uh, much more sort of controversial and contested actually openly in this election cycle than others, in part because of the climate um, in which we're in. But this is something where there just isn't the legislative will to make the change because of the fact that the people who are uh, the most interested are the ones who are actually in charge of the process. So whether yeah. that's in charge of changing the process or in charge of drawing the district, the, the district lines themselves.
1: Yeah, I thank you for that. You know, Margaret, I don't think I said what I meant to say very articulately. I mean, if you are, if you happen to be running it for a seat. In a district that's fairly evenly split, you have to be mindful of the views of people on the right and the left to win your election. You've got to find a way uh, to moderate your positions. And when you win, you've got to go to Congress and keep in mind you've got people of both persuasions who you have to try to represent. Of course, when a district is completely red or completely blue, you can stay with the most partisan uh, positions of your own party. And it's part of what contributes to this terrible gridlock and a Congress that can't get anything done.
3: Absolutely. When you feel like you have no competition, you don't have to bring your A game. And you certainly don't have to um, try to be even handed when it comes to the definition of who you're who you're representing. That is absolutely the case. I will add on to, um, you know, the snowball that keeps um, keeps rolling downhill at quicker and quicker speeds and that the Supreme Court has also allowed basically an open-ended checkbook of outside money, dark money, anyone's money to come in and influence these partisan races. So, there is, um, if, if you are a first-time uh, would-be uh, legislator, either in the state level or the national level, You're going to have to become really savvy about um, who you who 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 spreads uh, butter on your on your bread and who you actually have to end up um, answering to once you reach office. So big money politics is is now, in my opinion, a blight to our democracy, as is gerrymandering and together. It's, it's, um, it's creating a whole lot of, of disruption in, in the places that we live. Neighbors no longer look at each other as neighbors. You look, at, you look at each other as potential enemies because that's the rancor and the level of partisanship that is, is occurring right now um, in campaigns.
2: Jim? Yeah, well, this is—I mean, this is how you get Marjorie Taylor Greene in Congress, and why she's going to be uh, pretty much a lock there as as long as she's she wants to. And it's also why uh, 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 you know, if you're an odds maker, you're you're giving uh, you're giving uh, putting heavy money on Kevin McCarthy becoming Speaker uh, uh, next Janu- uh, Jan uh, in, in January of 2023. Uh, but but I also have to say in it. Racial polarization has a lot to do, uh, or just political polar polarization has a lot to do with this. But there's also a a, uh, a kind of a, an, a policy decision uh, difference between the two parties, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Republicans for the last two or three decades have been very cognizant of the power of state legislatures, and they have put a great deal of focus on 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 winning control of those legislatures, including Georgia. Democrats have put less emphasis on that from state to state. And uh, right now they're paying a very heavy price for it.
1: it, 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 And, and of course, it's one of the things, Jim, it's one of the reasons that when we look at votes uh, in the U.S. House, uh anything that uh President Biden proposes gets unanimous uh negative votes, na f- votes from Republicans and uh positive votes from uh uh Democrats. It's the split
2: is complete, right? Right. And and it's even even among yeah. Democrats, you like uh, you've got uh uh Kristen Cinema and, and Joe Manchin uh pretty much siding with Republicans on most most of those issues.
1: Yeah. All right. Um, I I just thought that Wall Street Journal piece was fascinating. And and I think that, that Andre, you pointed out that without changes to how we uh, draw districts, uh, this is just going to continue in perpetuity, really. Jim Galloway, let's move on. Um, I moved to Georgia in 1983, the fall of 1983. And when I got here, a number of people told me the various things that I really needed to do to uh, get a feel for my new city of Atlanta. And one of the things I was told was how wonderful it would be for me to go to Aunt Fanny's Cabin, a restaurant in Smyrna that had been around for a very long time. It was fashioned as a former slave quarters, and Aunt Fanny was allegedly a slave who had worked on an alleged plantation that had once existed in Smyrna. My mother came down to visit. I said, okay, mom, let's go to this place, Aunt Fanny's cabin. And we walked in the door, Jim, and I was horrified. And I think your reaction, based on a story you wrote all the way back in 1998 about this, was pretty much the same. And I bring it all up because now the city of Smyrna is trying to figure out what to do with this building that once housed Aunt Fanny's cabin,
2: which has been out of business for some time. They were trying to, still trying to figure that out in 1998, and they still don't have yeah. an answer. And there's probably not a, not a, not not a, not an answer. Uh, they're they're st- still trying to find a reason to preserve it, uh, and uh, people are legitimately asking whether it should be preserved at all. It's look, it was, it, it was a. Uh, it was one of the one of the the more successful marketing issues in uh, in, uh, in in Georgia. Uh, uh, Aunt Fanny's cabin started in 1941. The date is important because when did Gone with the, the movie Gone with the Wind come out? It came out in 1939. It was riding on, it was riding on that. Uh, you had uh, I went there once. My father in law took us took us there. Uh, you had young 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 black boys uh, who would wear yokes uh, uh plywood plywood menus uh, with a holes scout cut out in the middle and they would put their heads through them and they would bring you show you the show you the mem- menu here uh, uh you had lots of you had you know the Mickey Rooneys uh the 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 the, uh, the all all the Hollywood stars of that era they, they were they were all all photographed coming coming through through here, through here, uh, and it was close to it. It was also close to uh, to uh, uh, what is now Dobbins uh, was the Bell Bomber Factory uh, back in the day, and and so there was a lot of high profile traffic through there. But it's it's, uh, except in 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 the the most. In, in in a most in the most kind of analytical way i'm i'm it's this is something that if it belongs in a in a museum it's something that needs to be told very it's a story that needs to be told very carefully
1: i you know under jim just p- talked about the fact that, that young uh, black children young young boys wearing these uh, menus around their necks and and often um, getting up on tables and uh, dancing to old uh, Confederate songs. Um, I, you know, the city of Smyrna is trying to figure it out. There are certainly people there who think it should just be torn down and gotten rid of. There are some people say it, it has architectural significance. But uh, all this does to me, Andra, is remind me of the really, really troubling past that Georgia has got to confront.
0: So... Um- Jim, thank you for telling me the story about what what, go, what went on there, like some of those details I did not get um, from uh, the articles that I read in preparation uh, for this show, and I'm, I'm horrified. And, and that kind of stuff doesn't need to be preserved. On the other hand, I think it does need to be a part of the historical record that places like this existed through the 20th century, like this place closed in the early 90s. Um, and so people need to know that within our lifetime. Like, there was ridiculous stuff like this happening. And so when we talk about sort of the the, the vestiges of slavery and Jim Crow, we are not talking about stuff necessarily that happened 50 years ago or 150 years ago. We're talking about stuff that, like, you know, somebody could have Mm -hmm. taken me to in my lifetime. And as a kid, that would have been traumatizing for me. Um, And that would have been something my parents would have had to have a conversation with me about to say that you are not that person and this is wrong. And, and, and that we need to kind of um, take care of that. So I think people sometimes need to be confronted with the ugly past. But I think pictures and, you know, maybe some artifacts from the place would probably be enough to allow that to, to, to be preserved. The architectural argument isn't about what took place at this particular restaurant, but that this was an old sharecropper's cabin and that there are very few of those that are left. Um, and so if, if the goal is to try to preserve a sharecropper's cabin so that we see how poor people lived, how mostly black people lived in these, in, in, in these kinds of um, in, environments, then I think the question is, well, where's the best place for it? Um, and so it may not necessarily be on the site where the restaurant was, um, but there needs to be some type of, 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 of you know, uh, sort of preservation. And, and one that's done with an eyes towards telling the whole unvarnished history and not necessarily worried about making sort of the proprietors of 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 of, of Aunt Fanny's cabin, because apparently Miss um, Fanny, and I'm saying that sort of you know intentionally, was never it was her food, but she never profited off of it in the way that the owners did. And so there's an exploitation that's here, to the to the point that that story gets told, and we can kind of understand where people are coming from when they're talking about the need for critical race theory. Or the need to talk about reparations and other kinds of things, because there's exploitation on so many dimensions here. And if that story's not getting told, then then we're not doing the story justice. And it would probably be better to tear the whole thing down.
1: Margaret,
3: yeah, I, I think it's it's a shame that um, there's a zeitgeist in, in today's America that history is a linear line that has um, that is straightforward when in fact history is multifaceted and multicultural and it can be horrible and fantastic. And uh, to, to preserve as a piece of amber um, that moment of American history where, um, where caricatures and exploitation were, were, um, were seen as entertainment for some people is, is something that I think is, is definitely old fashioned. I would consider people to um, take a deeper look at, at George's history.
1: Margaret Coker, you get the last word on today's Political Rewind. And thank you, uh, Margaret, for uh, being with us. And congratulations on the grant uh, for The okay. Current to expand your staff. Andre Gillespie, you know we always love having you on the show. Thanks for being here today. And Jim Galloway, uh, glad to uh, share time with you on today's show as we do every Monday. We're out of time. Uh, today, my thanks to Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burma dawes Jesse Neiswanger for their work, as always, on making Political Rewind better than I would ever possibly make it on my own. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. I hope you'll join us for that. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, get a booster shot if you haven't had one by now. See you all tomorrow.